the last few weeks and especially this last Tuesday, we have been given repeated reminders that evil is real. We live in a truly broken world filled with sorrow, suffering, and pain. What happened this last Tuesday in Texas, it was shocking. Like an unexpected punch to the gut sort of a shock. And when we are shocked by things like this shooting or the shooting that happened a little while ago in Buffalo, all these sorts of heavy things that happen, I believe that the only right response is grief-stricken prayer to God. That's exactly what we saw from Nehemiah in chapter one of the book of Nehemiah last week. We saw this together last week in Nehemiah chapter one, beginning at verse one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan in the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive to your, and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. Nehemiah was filled with grief because of the state of his homeland. And he was moved to call out to the God of heaven, the scriptures say. Again, this is, I believe, the, the right and good response when we are stricken by grief at the state of our nation or our people or the time in which we live. We read near the end of Nehemiah chapter 1 at verse 11, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For Nehemiah says, I was the king's cupbearer. This last Tuesday afternoon, I hadn't really been paying attention to any of the news throughout the day. But I realized that something bad had happened in Texas when I went on to Twitter and I saw a whole bunch of posts flooding in with the words pray for Texas. As soon as I did, I went and I checked the normal news sites that I go to and like probably you and many other people who saw the news on Tuesday afternoon, my, my heart just sank. And the news of the shooting and, and the way it happened and where it happened and a lot of the news wasn't coming in very well at the start. We didn't know exactly the details of everything as is normally the case when something like this happens. But through all of it, I was just, my heart broke and like a lot of people, I was moved to pray. But as the day went on, I saw several other posts on social media in response to the repeated calls of people to pray. And there were these subtweets, if you will, these comments underneath 
that said things like, stop your praying, we need to do something. Now, I understand the sentiment of those that posted those comments online, where they, they feel this compulsion when they see something horrible like this happen, like, we need to do something, we need to act. I think a lot of people feel like that, like, we got to do something about this. But as I saw those comments, immediately a quote came to my mind, which I actually shared with someone after last week's service here at the church, a quote from John Bunyan, who wrote the great book, if you've never read it, you probably should, called Pilgrim's Progress. But John Bunyan said that you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And he goes on and he says, pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. I love that, that idea that you can do more than pray after you have prayed. Unfortunately, prayer is too often our last or next to last response and not the first thing that we do. Interesting because prayer and fasting don't appear in the book of Ezra, which I shared last week that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are really one book together in the Hebrew Bible. And so Nehemiah is the, the last third of this book. But in the book of Ezra, which again, it's the same storyline as Nehemiah, um, just shows up earlier in the, the timeline. There is no prayer mentioned until the eighth chapter. So the book of Ezra is almost over. I think it's only 10 chapters. So it's almost over before you even see prayer come up. And sadly, that is how it is way too often in my life. There are far too many eighth chapter prayers in my life that it, it comes towards the end of the story that I finally go, you know, maybe I should pray about this. And I wonder if the the story or the circumstances that weigh upon us, if they might be much shorter, if our prayers began much sooner. So as Bunyan said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And those are really good words to remember and maybe to keep in mind when we encounter difficulties and all of us will encounter some sort of difficulty, maybe a major thing, maybe a really small thing. This coming week, you're going to go through challenging things. And hopefully you'll remember that the, the first response, especially as a Christian, should be to turn to God in prayer. And certainly there was much work that needed to be done during the time of Nehemiah in Jerusalem. But first, you've got to start with prayer. Now, prayer alone would not fix the situation that Nehemiah's people in Jerusalem were going through. But the fixes that were needed in Jerusalem, they, they hadn't really come to pass in almost a century. And I think that that in part has to do with the lack of prayer. There was a lack of a turning to God. So they had tried all kinds of different things for nearly the last hundred years to fix the city, but none of those things had proven all that successful. And they delayed in coming to God in prayer. So we need to be much quicker to pray. Now, we certainly cannot forget God's word to King Solomon when the dedication of the first temple happened at Jerusalem. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, maybe a verse you've read before. I know it's kind of like one of those famous verses that people turn to, oftentimes out of context, but it's still a good verse. 2 Chronicles 7, 14, God says to Solomon, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, again, certainly we should be slow to apply those words to ourselves um, because we're not 
Israel for the most part. I mean, maybe you have Jewish heritage, but for the most part, we're not Israel. So those words were spoken to the children of Israel and to Solomon thousands of years ago. So we have to be careful not to just quickly apply these words to ourselves, but they are applicable or were applicable to Nehemiah in a big way. So Nehemiah did just as God had bid that his people would do. He humbled himself. And the scriptures tell us there in that passage we read in Nehemiah chapter one that he fasted and he sought the Lord and he confessed and repented of the sin of his people and even took that confession as his own. He confessed their sin as his own and repented of it. And Nehemiah did this as the text says, many days in verse four. And he did it day and night, says verse six. The apostle James in the New Testament writes in James chapter five, verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And here's the key. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he reminds us of the story of Elijah from First Kings. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. When God's people are moved to pray, God is moved to act on behalf of his people. This is such an important thing for us to hold in our minds. When God's people are moved to pray, God is moved to act on behalf of his people. I've shared before, I believe they are the words of the great American evangelist D.L. Moody, where prayer is focused, power falls. So Nehemiah began focused prayer to God on behalf of his people and on behalf of his nation as he recognized that he might be in a privileged position as a cupbearer to the king. We just read this in Nehemiah chapter one, verse 11. He says, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I, Nehemiah says, was cupbearer to the king. Now, you may not feel that you have much of a privileged position in this world. Maybe you feel like you have a very small sphere of influence and you really don't have any way to be a powerful influence upon people around you or the world. But you should know that as a child of God, you have a privileged position with the God of heaven. That is huge. You may not have a lot of connections in this world, but you have a connection to God if you are a Christian. And no amount of privilege in this world is really anything without ultimately receiving God's empowering and his mercy and his grace. So Nehemiah, we are told he prayed. He said, let your servant, God, let your servant prosper this day and grant me mercy in the sight of this man that I'm working for or working alongside of because I was the king's cupbearer, the king of the empire of the world at that time. So Nehemiah was in a privileged position as the cupbearer to the king, but he didn't really recognize it as a privileged position, at least in this situation having to do with his people in Jerusalem, until he began to pray. And he didn't begin to pray until he was confronted by the plight of his people. So the pressing circumstances of Nehemiah's time they moved him to pray. And his persistence in prayer caused him to recognize that he was in a special place, being the cupbearer to the king. He had a privileged position, which God might be able to use for his glory. So I wanna to say to you, you have no idea 
what privilege you actually have until you begin to see your situation on the other side of persistent prayer. You see, persistent prayer changes us and it, percep it changes our perception, the way that we see things. Persistent prayer makes us aware of things that we were not aware of before we began to pray. Persistent prayer helps us to gain a right perspective. It helps us to gain a right perspective of ourselves. It helps us to gain a right perspective of the situations that we are in. It really helps us to gain a proper perspective of our problems and our circumstances. But here's the key one. When you continue in persistent prayer, it helps you to gain a right perspective of God. You begin to see God clearly. Do you realize that your God is greater than any of the things that you will face in this life? When we see ourselves in light of our problems, our problems are always greater than we are or else they, they wouldn't be problems. I mean, they would not be a problem if you could tackle it. So the problem always seems bigger than you. But when you begin to see your problem in light of God, then things change dramatically. Now, I keep saying that persistent prayer is important because we read in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, which is where we're going to be today, Nehemiah chapter 2. Look at what Nehemiah 2, verse 1 says. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan. Now, that's really important. So you might want to underline or circle that word Nisan. It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in the presence of the king before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, Nehemiah says. Now, Nehemiah 1, it opened with the words, and it came to pass in the month of Kislev. And now in the transition into chapter 2, we read, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan. Now, these are not the names of our months. I mean, we go by the calendar, January, February, March, and so forth. The names of the months in the Jewish calendar are different, and the Jewish year is calculated in different days as well. And so in the month of Kislev, that is right around our November, December. So when he says that in the middle of the month of Kislev, it came to pass in the month of Kislev, you know, maybe he's the mid-month, right at the beginning of December. Now when we read in Nehemiah chapter 2 that it comes to pass in the month of Nisan, now we're in the middle of what would be for us like March, April. So some four months has passed, 120 days has passed since Nehemiah received word that the work in Jerusalem was in great distress and the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and the gates were burned with fire. Four months has passed. Four months of persistent prayer. When Nehemiah 1.4 says that Nehemiah sat down and he wept and he mourned for many days. We can put a number on the many days. It's four months. It's like 120 days of prayer and fasting before God. That's a long time. Day and night, night and day for four months, Nehemiah prayed. He mourned. He confessed. He fasted. He called upon God for his mercy and his grace. God may not move quickly but he does move mightily when he is moved by our persistent prayers. Let's face it, we are impatient people. I am an impatient person. We want things right now. We expect an immediate response. We get antsy when we send a text message to someone and they don't respond within like two minutes. We get frustrated when the prime truck 
it shows up on our on our phone the prime truck is like eight stops away and we're gonna have to wait a little longer for our package we keep driving past the starbucks drive-through when we see there are four cars in the drive-through because we don't want to wait but jesus when teaching his followers to pray in luke chapter 11 he taught them this. We read this in Luke 11, verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. And a friend, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, Though he will not rise and give to him because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence, underline that in verse 8 if you're taking notes, because of his persistence he will rise and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Also in Luke, Jesus continuing to teach on this idea of persistence or continuance in prayer. We read this story in Luke chapter 18. It says this in verse 1. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. That's a hard one for me. We always ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying, there was a certain city, in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he, the judge, would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, she's persistent, she troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continually coming she wearies me. And then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge says. Jesus is not commending this judge. He's saying it's an unjust judge. And shall... God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. What is Jesus teaching here in this passage? Well, he seems to be teaching us that God is moved by our persistent prayers. Now, that does not mean that he will most certainly do what we bid him to do with our continual prayers. But he does tell us to ask, to seek, and to knock. One author that has written a lot on prayer, a man by the name of E.M. Bounds, he writes this on, in his book, The Necessity of Prayer. There can be no question but that importunate prayer or persistent prayer moves God and heightens human character. So that's exactly what Nehemiah did for, for four months. For four months, he prays day and night. And after he begins to pray day and night to the God of heaven, Nehemiah now, after that four-month period, is before the king of Persia as the cupbearer to the king. He spent four months before the king of kings in heaven. And that was all in preparation for this one moment before the king of Persia. And it makes me wonder, how many opportunities on earth have we missed because of our dispassionate or impassionate prayerlessness? that we're not given to persistent, passionate prayer. We don't do it. And how often do we miss opportunities or open doors that the Lord may have for us because we're not before the Lord in prayer? Now, briefly, it's important to explain that the cupbearer to the king is not just the guy who holds the king's cup. The king's cupbearer in the Persian Empire at that point in time was basically like the food tester or food taster. Assassination attempts on kings in ancient times were often through poisoning. And so the cupbearer was the trusted guy who would be the taste tester for the king. 
and it was like super important that he not be sad in the presence of the king or that he not look not so good. So the king, he looks at Nehemiah, there's Nehemiah giving him the cup and Nehemiah's distracted, doesn't look very well. And he says, hey, what is wrong with you? Why are you so downcast and sad today? The king says to Nehemiah. Now, a lot has been made about this section of scripture by Bible teachers and commentators as if Nehemiah purposefully changed his appearance in the presence of the king to try to manipulate some sort of opportunity with the king for this situation. Certainly that's possible, but I don't think that that is very likely at all. The previous four months of prayer, they had shifted Nehemiah's focus. His presence of mind was no longer on the task that was right before him. It was on Jerusalem, you know, a very far journey away from where he was in what is now at this point in time, modern day Iran. And I'm sure that you've experienced circumstances like this in which your mind is so focused on some pressing issue that the task that is immediately before you becomes kind of like a distant thought. And I think that that's what Nehemiah was facing when the king asked him, hey, what is wrong with you? Why is your face so sad? What is going on in your head? And so we read Nehemiah 2 verse 2, therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became, Nehemiah says, I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies and waste and its gates are burned with fire? So we read there that Nehemiah became dreadfully afraid. And the fact that he became dreadfully afraid when the king noticed that he was downcast in his countenance, that tells me that this was not some sort of intentional manipulation on Nehemiah's part. He's not trying to manipulate the king into an opportunity here. He has been so focused on all the concerns of Jerusalem, so overcome by all of the concerns of Jerusalem that he has little concern for the work that is right in front of him at that point in time. Now, this isn't exactly a good thing, but it is a real thing. When we are mentally and emotionally and spiritually absorbed with some situation or circumstance. Maybe on Wednesday, you might have felt like that after you saw the news and everything that happened in Texas on Tuesday. It, it was hard to focus maybe on work during that period of time because you're so absorbed with it. So when you are mentally, emotionally and spiritually absorbed with some situation or circumstance, it is hard to engage with the tasks at hand. And this is what Nehemiah was dealing with at this point in time when the king talks with him. So Nehemiah says to the king, why should my face not be sad when the, the city that I've always wanted to go to, you know, my great, great grandfathers, that's where they lived. And I've been looking forward to the opportunity to go to Jerusalem. And it is just in complete disarray. It lies in waste. The gate, the gates are burned with fire. And that is an honest response. But it was probably an out of protocol response as well. It wasn't exactly how you would probably talk as the king's cupbearer to the king in the king's court, you know, 2,400 years ago in Persia. I doubt that Nehemiah's response to the king was flippant. I don't think it was disrespectful, but it was likely um, unusual. And in that setting and with that person, it was a little strange for Nehemiah to be speaking like that. And yet, God is able to use it. So we go on, verse four, Nehemiah chapter two. Then the king said to me, what do you request? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. Note this, I love this. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, 
If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. I absolutely love those words right there. Nehemiah, he just blurts out what is in his heart. I can't focus on what's going on in front of me right now with Jerusalem in ruin the way that it is. And the king responds, well, what do you, what do you want me to do about it? What do you bid me to do? And right there, the opportunity arises for Nehemiah. A door is opened. And it's a door that Nehemiah could never have manufactured, even if he had a good relationship with the king. There's no way he could have manufactured this moment. A God-ordained open door shows up. And I love that it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king. Those two lines, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, they expose an extremely important reality. We live our lives between two worlds. Nearly 100% of the time, we are focused almost entirely on the world that we can touch, the world that we can see, taste, hear, smell, and so forth, that we can take in with our senses. That's what we are absorbed with most of the time. But prayer, it attunes us to another world. And in many respects, fasting, when you fast from food, especially, I mean, there's other things you could fast from, but when you fast from food, it helps us to disengage from being absorbed with this world. And I think it would therefore probably be true to say that prayer disconnects us from the earthly and connects us to the heavenly. And this disconnect, reconnect experience is very, very important. It has been said that individuals can be so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. But in the world that we live in, in 2022, it is much more likely that we will be so earthly focused that we have nearly zero awareness on heaven. This is why the Apostle Paul in his New Testament letter to the Colossians would exhort the church at Colossae and us living in this time in this place. He says, set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. For four months, Nehemiah had focused prayer, which prepared him for this one moment with the king. I mean, think about all of the time that went by for 120 days to lead up to a conversation that took a minute and a half between him and the king. Four months of focused prayer prepared Nehemiah for this one moment with the king. He had set his mind on things above, just like Paul exhorts in Colossians 3.2. So much so, he had set his mind on things above to the point that he was, in some sense, unaware of his immediate appearance as he was standing before the king. Now, it's not that he was not doing his job, but his presence of mind was elsewhere. And the king's question, like, brings him back. It, like, brings him right back to the moment, to the present. And in that moment, the king says to him, so what do you want me to do? And he prays to the God of heaven. Just, just real quick, final, brief prayer. And then he speaks to the king his request. One author writing on this says, quick prayers are possible and valid if one has prayed sufficiently beforehand. I really like that. He has this real quick prayer to the God of heaven. We don't even know what his prayer was. It was probably just like, Lord, here goes, help me. But quick prayers, they are valid if someone has prayed sufficiently beforehand, the author goes on to say, Nehemiah had prayed for months, 
but he knew he was completely dependent on God's work in the king's heart at this moment. This is all in the hands of the Lord is really what Nehemiah is expressing when it says, and he prayed to the God of heaven and he said to the king. And so here's his request to the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in, this, in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Now, it isn't exactly stated in the text, but it is my view that when Nehemiah first began to pray about the problem in Jerusalem four months prior to this very quick conversation with the king, he did not probably imagine himself as the one that was going to do the work to rebuild Jerusalem. But often it is the case that when God moves us to pray, he moves us also to act in accordance with our pray prayers. Many times when we pray about an issue or a problem, we come to find that God's answer to our prayer is to use us to be the answer to our prayer, which is a challenge for us. One of my favorite examples of this is found in the Gospel of Matthew, where we read these words in Matthew chapter 9. At the very end of Matthew chapter 9, at verse 35, it says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, Matthew 9:36, when he saw the multitudes, Jesus was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then he sees the multitudes. He's grieved by this. He said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, he says to his disciples, you pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And then the very next word, which is actually a new chapter, but the very next word in Matthew chapter 10 says, and when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and disease. Skip down to verse five. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, do not go by the way of the Gentiles, do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep. Those very same ones in the previous passage, he said they were like sheep without a shepherd and you need to pray for them. Now he sends his disciples, the very ones he told that they needed to pray for them, he sends them out to go and reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is going on here? Well, Jesus commanded his disciples to pray for workers to go out into the fields to gather these lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then after he commanded his disciples to pray, he commissioned the very same praying disciples to go out into the work. So what does that teach us? Well, it teaches us that when God moves us to pray, be prepared to be moved to action. God wants to maybe use you. If he impresses upon you something that you need to pray about, it is very likely that he is also impressing upon you that he wants you to be involved in that work. And so Nehemiah says, you know, I want to go back and build Jerusalem. And we read this in verse six, Nehemiah chapter two. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set for him a time. The investment of our time in prayer always pays dividends. I, I can't stress this enough. Any time that you give to God in prayer as a sacrifice to the Lord of your time in prayer, God will pay dividends on that time in prayer. And so going on verse seven, furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall 
and for the house that I will occupy. I love that he's going to build himself a house as well. And the king granted them, notice this, the king granted my request according to the good hand of my God upon me. Again, those last words there, and the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. We see in those words the reality that we live our lives between two worlds. It was the good hand of God upon Nehemiah that led the king there in Persia to grant to Nehemiah all that he requested. But notice also that the four months in prayer not only prepared this opportunity for Nehemiah and prepared Nehemiah for this opportunity, but they also prepared in Nehemiah a proper plan of action when the door opened. I'm sure that Nehemiah was a smart guy. He was a smart guy in a privileged position there in the uh, citadel in Sushan. But I don't necessarily know that he was an administrator, a governor, a builder, an architect, all of those things. But for four months in prayer, God moved him to begin to plan a plan of action for if the door was ever to open. And in my life, this has been the same experience as well. I remember very, very well, it was back in the summer of 2002, August of 2002 to be exact, that I began to have a stirring in my heart that one day I would be the pastor of this church. Now, at the time, I was only 22 years old and that thought seemed quite illogical. And I had only been in pastoral ministry here at the church for a few years, had very little ministry experience. So talk about like youthful, presumptuous audacity to have very little experience, to be 22 years old and to think someday I'm going to be a pastor of this church. But that stirring in my heart that started in August of 2002, it began to move me to pray. And that prayer that one day I would be the pastor of this church. That continued from August of 2002 until December of 2007. Five and a half years, I thought and prayed about one day being the pastor of this church. And then in early December of 2007, my pastor, the former pastor of this church, he said to me, Miles, do you think that God has called you to be the pastor of this church? And essentially, I prayed to the God of heaven in that moment. And I said to my pastor, yes. And it was during the five and a half years that went from August to 2002 until December 2007 that God prepared me and prepared a plan in my heart for the day that that door would open, that opportunity would come. So when God moves you to action, seek and rely upon him for the strategy and the plan. And that's exactly how things worked out for me and have worked out for me many, many times. And that's exactly what we see with Nehemiah as well. God moves him to pray. He prays for four months, 120 days or more. Who knows exactly how long it was, but he prays for four months and then the opportunity comes and he's able to have a plan and a strategy to move forward in because God had prepared it in him. So when God moves you to action, seek and rely upon him for the strategy and the plan. So we continue on in Nehemiah chapter two, verse nine. It says, then I went to the governors of the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. And when Sanballat, verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, remember these names, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed 
that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. This is the point at which you should probably hear the ominous three-note song, dun-dun-dun, when we hear about these two individuals that have a problem. And you should remember this really important thing for us to hold on to as we are seeking to follow the Lord faithfully and serve him faithfully. When God moves us to act, there will always be opposition. And we're going to see this opposition play out in the coming weeks as we go through this story. But when God moves us to act, there will always be opposition. To the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he wrote, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost for a great and effective door has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. I love that word. A great door has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. For many years, especially as I was growing up into the ministry, I have heard it said that where God guides, he provides. And I believe that that is true, but that does not always mean that the journey will be smooth sailing. Throughout his life and ministry, the Apostle Paul experienced opposition. He was beaten, he was robbed, he experienced shipwreck, he was bitten by venomous snakes, he experienced hunger, he was imprisoned, and ultimately he was martyred. Again, to the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he writes this, We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, yet not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. When God moves you to pray and moves you to also act, you must expect that there will be opposition. And when that opposition comes, you've got to continue to persist in prayer. And God will continue to move in and through you mightily. That is the story that we have here of Nehemiah. That's been my experience. That's what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul and others throughout church history and in the scriptures. God will move us. He will drive us to the place of prayer as we are stricken by just the horrible things that are happening around us in the world. And as we are praying, he will develop in us a strategy and a plan to act. But we've got to expect that the enemy will always stand against the work that God is trying to do in and through us. This is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says, Having done all to stand, stand therefore, put on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, take the belt of truth, all these different things, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and praying always, praying always. As we persist in prayer and continue in prayer, God will continue to move through us mightily. The culture that we live in, here in the United States, in the Western world, just the world that we live in in 2022 desperately needs God to move mightily through his church. That will only happen as we talked about last week and as we see again this week as the people of God are moved to pray and then ready to act as God begins to work in and through us. So God, would you work in us? Drive us to the place where we are calling out to you persistently, continually in prayer. Maybe it will take four months, 120 days. It might take four years or 15 years. Who knows? We have no idea. But Lord, would you drive us to the place where we call out to you in consistent, persistent, continual prayer, praying always. God, help us to do that. And Lord, would you move mightily through your people 
you have strategically placed each of us in this culture on the school campus we're on, in the office building we work in, on the construction site we're in, in the neighborhood we live in, within the family we live in, well, wherever you've placed us, you have placed us there for such a time as this. And I pray that you'd help us to recognize that and acknowledge that you have us there for a specific purpose. And Lord, that we would step into those things, even if we are gonna be opposed, the enemy will come against us, but greater are you who is in us than any enemy we'll face. So Lord, help us to have the eyes of faith to see it and to walk trusting you. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.